Find your feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast. Thanks so much for continuing to come back and to listen to this podcast as we share stories about people who are finding their feet. Today, I'm excited to be introducing you to Michael Bentley and someone that I've come to call a friend as well as a guest on our recent Find Your Feet tour to Wild Japan. Look, Michael and I, our friendship only goes back a couple of years and I was very fortunate enough to meet him and his then partner, Christine, when they would sit on Criterion Street just near the Find Your Feet store with their two beautiful border collies, like think of the most gorgeous dogs in the world and Triplet and they're the dogs. And they would sit there in the sun drinking their cups of tea and, and they just had this aura around them. Sadly, Christine passed away about 22 months ago and, you know, obviously Michael has been on a journey and I'm really fortunate enough to have been in his world throughout this time and it was such an honour that he did come to Japan with us. I felt today's conversation was really important because I was fortunate enough to spend this time running on wild trails together just alone with Michael and and sharing a lot of conversations around the the thought and the way in which we live our life. And as we did run along that trail, I had this deep sense that we were very in tune with one another, which was quite fortuitous because this conversation really became about the attunement in the way in which we live our life and the attunement in the way that we run when we're on a wild trail. Michael is a phenomenal runner. Um, now over the age of 60, he and his previous um, life was running sub three hour marathons all the while while studying, let me count, one, two, three, four, five degrees that ended in a doctor of public health with the Flinders University. I mean, this guy has, he's so humble and has yet a wealth of life behind him. What I also really wanted to explore in this conversation was what running has done for him over the last couple of years, how he perceives it in his world, but also to discuss a bit about his view on health in general of our society. I think we can all agree that we are in a world where we are quite polarised with them. a part of the population that is struggling with health and then this group of people who are striving towards phenomenal achievements. And if we take ultra runners as an example of that, um, the conversation went in a multitude of directions, but I really do hope that your take home out of this is the importance about living in a tune with not only nature and the world around us, but also with yourself and the ability to show self-compassion towards yourself, even as you're striving towards large goals. All right, enough from me on the topic of the podcast today, but let me just take one moment to talk about my new trail running guidebook. A week ago, my new trail running guidebook just came out. It is a self-published publication now available in a multitude of sources from paperback books through the Find Your Feet store, which I do highly recommend because there's a lot of worksheets in the book, but you can also grab yourself a copy on pretty much every ebook platform that you can think of out there. So Kindle, iBooks, you name it, it's out there. 
So please, um, if you're thinking about the way forward with your running, not quite sure where you're going with it or have some questions, I'm pretty sure that a lot of what's in the guidebook will help to answer those questions. Um, So head over to the Find Your Feet store, www.findyourfeet.com.au. And don't forget that every first um, purchase through the store is eligible for a 20% discount. Just pop in the discount that pops up on your screen um, when you get to the checkout. But if you're an existing member with us, you also receive an ongoing 10% discount. And that code is THANK YOU with a capital T, capital Y, or one word, and then an exclamation mark at the end. So thank you. Alrighty, definitely enough from me. Let's jump into this conversation with the ever-beautiful, ever-amazing, ever-inspiring Michael Bentley. I still smile um, every time I think about Japan. It was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you sign up to Japan in the first place, out of curiosity? For two reasons. One was I wanted to go somewhere I'd never been before mm-hmm. in the world, and I yeah. wanted it to be a different cultural experience. Yep. And I'd never been, I've never actually travelled, apart from an, a brief stay in Singapore, I've never been through Southeast Asia. And, but when I thought about it, I thought Japan sounds like the country that I would want to visit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talking to friends had been, everybody that I spoke to had been raved about it for, for whatever reason they'd gone. So, yeah. For, and for all of it, like the nature, the, the cultural food. experience. Yeah. Yeah, the food. But for me, it was the food, the people, the people we were travelling with, yeah. um, where we were staying, and particularly running in those beautiful yeah. mountain trails and forest trails. They were just fantastic. And so, like, the... Did you have any preconceived ideas about what what we were going to throw at you and what the experience was going to entail? Or? Um, I, I certainly had a sense of when we went out on our runs that that was sort of what you had planned, but I could also see that they were all flexible as well, yeah, you know, yeah. and like we'll just <laughs> go with the flow, yeah. um, which is a favourite Irish saying of mine, you know, yeah. that, that's a good way to do things is sometimes have, have a sort of you know, a sight in mind, but just go with the flow and on how you're going to do that. And uh, no, I thought I thought that um, the way in which we we um, went out each day worked really well. As you know, I ran every day, including the bonus pre uh, pre tour <laughs> day in Nagoya, um, yeah. which you know certainly put some extra miles on the legs for me. So uh, I I was I was up for it and absolutely yeah. was thrilled with uh, how it turned out. It's amazing how much uh, how much you can do and how much you can see in a short space of time when we take away all the other stressors that go on in our lives. Mm. I don't know if you notice that, but you just you think, oh, gee, I'm going to pull up sore from that, or I'm going to be tired after that effort. Like when we climbed Mount Yakudake, the like active volcano. But then surprisingly, like you wake up the next day and you might be a little weary, but nothing like if you tried to do that at home. Did you, did you I agree. That? In fact, uh, the day after we went up uh, Yakodaki, um, we ended up doing a reasonably long forest run around that trail around the river, and it was raining, um, <laughs> and it was probably as far again, if not further, yeah, the following further. day. And um, you're right. Um, I remember, in fact, um, Graham and I were running together for a time that second day, and um, 
two others had got ahead of us and uh, he, he spotted them in the distance and, and so we had a bit of a, a play <laughs> trying to catch up to them. I thought, well, I'm doing this the day after I've just climbed a mountain. So yeah. you must be feeling well, and I was, because as you say, you didn't have to worry about coming in at night and thinking, what am I going to do for dinner, you yeah. know, where, you know, accommodation, all those sorts of things. It was just That was just wonderful because, as you say, you could take all those stresses away from, from your everyday life and just play wild. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And I think it, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth because I'm sure you took your own things away from Japan and like lessons from it. But one thing that I always take away from that experience when I go on tour and it's always such a reminder for me is like running can give you just so much more than I think what we see in our Western culture, which tends to lean towards race, race, train, fitness, weight loss. <laughs> and yet when we're out there playing, like you don't have any thoughts about any of that. Like you're running because it, it literally is that mode of transport and that way to see a landscape and a culture. Mm. Is that what you found? I agree. In fact, um, it's running gives you that, that little bit of extra distance that you might not get if we were, say, doing a walking tour. Um, which, you know, you can also get a lot out of the landscape if, mm. you, if you do a sort of guided walking tour. And I've done one of those in Ireland uh, on my own. And uh, you tend to take a lot longer doing those because it, particularly if you're on your own, you just stroll for the day and, you, and you, you, know, you still cover some distance. But we were covering a lot more in the, t- in, in the way of um, distance in Japan and in company. And, and yeah, great yeah. way to see the country. Yeah. yeah, I don't know whether we were a bit of an oddity to some of the <laughs> some of the local Japanese uh, up in places oh, like Kamakoche, where they were all very hardy walkers, but we seemed to be the only the only westerners the, the only westerners around, and and we were running. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, definitely, we met that that young guy there who never met another or never met an Australian in his words. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we definitely stood out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, what, what lessons did you take home from Japan? I mean, we had that very, it was a really an emotional night, I felt like, on the last night when we were sitting around our little fire pit with the, um, you know, the, the teapot hanging in the middle of it and <laughs> pouring rain with a typhoon coming through and we were sharing our highlights of the day and the trip and, you know, I felt like we all were there for our own reasons like we all needed to be there for our own mm. reasons and I'm wondering what you feel like you learnt from Japan and especially the cultural side mm. um, certainly I was there like everyone for their own reasons and it was interesting to preface that by looking at listening to the other members of the tour mm. and and like them we all seemed transformed by that experience by the mm. end of the week and, and I was certainly transformed because I was I knew that Japan was a lovely country and I knew its people were, were gentle and kind and respectful and polite and that that all came through for me and, I, and having experienced it rather than been told about it, mm. I felt like that there was a different way of being in the world that you could be and, and the Japanese point us a little bit to that. Um, I've just been reading recently uh, the Japanese philosophy of Ikigai um, which has five pillars um, which I won't remember them all now, so I won't try and do that. But it's a better way of living, living more simply in life and being in the present yeah. and appreciating the small things. And I think I was every day I was appreciating something about the, um, um, the experience of what we'd had that day. And, and as you know, I wasn't taking photographs every day. I was at times composing a, you know, a brief bit of um, 
of prose in, in the form of a haiku or a six-word story. And, uh, and that, for me, was a way of trying to capture a moment yeah. from that day. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it, it's so much more than just, like, a visual experience or a physical experience. But, I mean, I think it is a spiritual experience when, they, when you go to Japan, whether you like it or not. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And for me, I, I'd call myself, you know, in terms of my... I was brought up Catholic mm. um, and I certainly worked out that that was an easy thing to reject when I sort of left school, probably well before that actually. But uh, nowadays I'd probably call myself a spiritual atheist yeah. uh, and I think that's captured in Japan. Uh, and, and if you read about the Japanese people, they believe in the, you know, the 800 gods, the, 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 the gods are in everything. You know, and you pay respect to, and by, and because they're in everywhere, you you take you pay your respects to everything. You pay your respects to the landscape. You pay your respects to the routines and the chores that you do each day. Um, mm. All sorts of ways in which they show respect um, to people, to place, to landscape. And uh, yeah, I would uh, I would concur with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it it was pretty amazing to see you know women and men standing in front of a lake like in the rain and just worshiping the lake and mm. bowing to the lake or you know standing in front of a tree and just being transfixed by it and I don't feel like we see that in that same light here and no. it's it's rare when you meet people that really connect on that deep level with nature mm. Um, mm. but I, I was actually going to ask you whether you see yourself as a spiritual person because to me you have an awe around you and I'm not, can't put words to it, but it comes across as like a spirituality. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just like a really, is it coming from like a deep appreciation of life and nature? And uh, Yeah, life? I think it is, uh, yeah. certainly. And, and um, it comes from a deep appreciation of, of us not being the centre of the universe in, or the centre of the earth, but we're, we're actually just part of... The, the greater systems that uh, this planet uh, is made up of, and and if you see yourself as not central to that, yeah, uh, and and outside it, then you can you can look at things quite quite differently. It's 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 not dissimilar to some ways in which um, Aboriginal people who who I've met over the years have described their relationship to the land, to country, um, but I, I haven't appropriated that in terms of mine. I mean, I, I think I've formed my own sort of spiritual way of looking at the world uh, over many years before I had before I had the experience of working with um, um, Aboriginal people through my work, which was mm. in it, which was when I was in South Australia. Because mm. spirituality is so much more than than a belief in a god or a system. It's a the way I've come to under well, the way I've put my own words around it for me is it's the when the physical meets the mental meets the emotional, I feel like that's when you get spiritual mm. um, or you feel that spiritual state where you feel so connected, not just with yourself, but with the world around you mm. that, um, that it, it sort of heightens everything. <laughs> Is that what you Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think once you become aware of everything around you, like on a run, for example, you know, if you're running and, and you're just even aware of um, of the trees around you, um, watching the, the rainbow that came up this morning over the mountain, the clouds that came across one of the valleys when I was running, all of those things, you're attuned to that. And I suppose maybe that's a way of, mm. maybe that's a way of describing it, that it's an, an attunement. Yeah. Um, and, and when you're, when you're out 
and you're attuned to what's going on, then then you are experiencing things through a different through a different um, way. I think, and it's, yeah. and it's a spiritual way. I love that attunement, but but I feel like that's something that we aspire towards. It's it's sort of um it it's infrequent when it all comes together because I think often our heads get in the way or oh, yeah. the body gets in the way and it's just yelling at you not to be there <laughs> doing yeah. that. Yeah. But I think it's nice to kind of have that as this sort of place where you aspire to be. Mm. Um, do you agree? But I, I, I'd also add to that that um, one of the experiences in Japan and it came from you know, when we were descending um, Yakodake and you were giving me all these downhill descent um, <laughs> tips. But there's two things to that. One is how can you how can you run down a rocky path and negotiate your way down so that you don't end up coming a cropper. Yeah. But the second bit is going back to that sort of attunement and that respect for everything in nature is that when you're coming down a path, if you're that focused on following it, you're actually observing and acknowledging yeah. the rocks ahead of you yeah. or the tree roots or whatever. And so there's two levels to that. There's there's a sort of physical and mental concentration that has to take place for you to be able to descend down a track well. But you could also say that that's, that becomes a spiritual experience if you're actually attuned to what you're doing and the landscape yeah. in, which, in which you're running it in. It's funny that you bring that up because that is actually one of my strongest memories of Japan was running down that mountain with you because we it was so quiet. It was... It was quiet in nature. There was the occasional bird call, yeah. and, I, and I just thought Michael will have heard that. But there was also such a quiet tranquility in yourself because not only had you sort of achieved what you set out to achieve and now you're on the home journey, but you're right, like you were just so focused on the technicality of that trail, which was incredibly technical coming down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I've, I'm conscious of that now all the time. Um, you know, every run that I'm going on, every trail, um, I'm thinking about all those tips. But as I said, I'm also thinking in a different way that I'm, I'm attuned to that trail wherever it is, whether it's up on the up on the mountain or wherever, I'm attuned to it in, in two different ways. Yeah. Yeah. One is doing it well and two mm-hmm. is acknowledging just where you are doing it. It's a very special place we live in here. I know. It's not lost on me. <laughs> I mean, even coming home from Japan and, you you know, you step off the plane here and you get that salt air and, you know, just see the mountain and you, you pinch yourself. You think, you know, you pay a lot of money to travel to see this mm. if you weren't from here. Mm. So I think it is, uh, I think the trail running definitely brings an appreciation to your natural environment around you. Mm. But I'm kind of curious to know whether you've been able to take, if we take that concept of attunement, uh, whether you've been able to take that away from the trail running world and the running world and bring that to life in general. Uh, I have because I'm conscious as I'm just going out and about in Hobart that I'm back in a, I'm back in my own culture, mm. and and it is a different culture, and and perhaps I'm a, I've brought back a little bit of that sort of Japanese politeness and respect and, and quietness about it. And, and I just noticed that even walking down Liverpool Street or somewhere like that, and, and I tend to observe other people and, and rather than sometimes, as I might have in the past, get, get cross at, you know, errant pedestrians or something like that, I'd just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's your way in the world, but I can just um, I can, I can respect that and just quietly go past you or or just not get upset by it, for example. So little things that 
sometimes can can get you a bit cross. Uh, I'm I'm less likely to do that now because I I think about um, the Japan experience and saying yeah. it's a, there is a different way of being in the world and yes. the Japanese have taught taught us that yeah uh, and and you can carry that with you yeah it's they really are so kind and so generous mm. not just in what they give to you but how they give it to you and it, that was really highlighted to me on the last day with um, Graham in Japan and we were waiting for a bus and we thought we'd kill a little bit of time by having a cup of tea and we were the only ones in this little tiny like tea house and as we um, were sitting there, the lady brought over some chocolates and then bought the most beautiful cups of tea and teapots. And it was like, you know, the classic Japanese experience. And as we were then leaving, she came out in the rain, stood on her porch and just waved us off until we were in the distance. Like, you know, five minutes, she was just standing there on her porch, just like waving goodbye. Yeah. And I mean, where else do you, I don't know, where else do you have that experience unless it's like your grandma's house? <laughs> so You're right. And even, even the last day when I was leaving Japan at the airport, the, the staff at the check-in counter all came out from behind their counter and bowed to us all in the queue before they opened before they opened the counters for us to check in. And I yeah. thought, I've never encountered that before. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. It, it, yeah. There's just, as you say, such a beautiful respect for for people and place and mm. yeah that you can carry that with you back here and I'm I'm certainly I won't say I'm trying to do I think I I'm, I'm consciously doing it and Japan was the f- the first place I ever went where I was really shown the concept of self-compassion I think that was what I brought back the first time and every time I go back is such a reminder of that did you have mm. that experience there you know just there they seem to have an ability to like self-nurture and uh, I don't think that's even a concept that we're very good at in the Western world as well, especially type A achievers who love to run and do physical things as well, like the concept of slowing down and having space and taking time through your daily routines, like even the bathing experience and the onsens. Like, I'm just wondering what your experience was on that level. Um, I certainly felt that while I was over there, but I, I think it's probably brought back a bit of a... Um, a reminder to, to the daily life I've got back here. And I recognised that there were things that I, I was already doing mm-hmm. that were probably self-nurturing nurturing and, and, and self-compassion. Um, little things like when I go and get a cup of coffee in town, I, I never get a takeaway coffee. I stop and I order a coffee and I talk to the barista and, and other people that might pop around you. And, and, and I recognise that uh, I do things like that and... Perhaps that's that self nurture that that the Japanese have sort of reinforced that you know there's they're good things to do in your life to take that moment be in the present enjoy the small things and look after yourself mm. yeah huh. so I've reinforced I mean, you know I've reinforced it in some ways that I, I think in the last couple of years I've been um, trying to work towards uh, a way of of you know more self compassion. Um, particularly, you know, through um, the loss of my partner and things mm. like that. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I don't think it was a revelation for me in Japan. It was probably a reinforcement of something that I was doing that just just reminded me to say, yes, you know, continue to do this yeah. and be aware of it when you're doing it. That's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Not only 
because it's so rare, I think, to meet people, for me, to meet people who I think openly can say, yes, I am compassionate with myself and I'm trying to be more compassionate, but also for a male, <laughs> just saying it. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it is rare. And I was actually going to ask you the question, like, how do you interact with quiet time? Because uh, I don't know, like, for me and people that I know, my family and friends, quiet time is a time for filling in and doing things. And I, you don't give me that aura. I think that's why you have an aura that you always you need to rush or you need to add more. Or I just want to I, I've in the past been the, the work, you know, the hard working push and fill the space all the time. I can tell by your CV. Yeah. I mean, you're. Yeah. Your study alone yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah, we'll that was that, that was that was a long a, a long period of, of pushing. I've done all of that now, and so the quiet time for me is I don't necessarily feel that I have to fill the time. Um, I do I do like music a lot, so sometimes when it's quiet time, I'm I've quite happily put on put on a cd of somebody i just want to listen to sometimes i don't mm-hmm. uh, I, you know i might just feel like reading for example or i might feel like having a nap <laughs> <laughs> and there are days in which you know particularly with all the physical um, exercise that, that i'm doing yeah. there are days when i go you know i've like this morning is a good example i went for a, a longish run came home then took the dogs down to town for a walk, so, you know, did that and came, came back, had lunch, and then, yeah, I thought, oh, that, that's pretty tired at the moment. Maybe I should just um, close my eyes just for half an hour or so, which I did, and then, yeah. So come over here. So I'm prepared to do that now, yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with um, looking after yourself and taking those breaks, you know, and still, still doing what you need to do in the world, in, yeah. in your sort of professional role and things like that. I'm still doing all of those things, but, but in a slower pace nowadays. So did you have to reach to that point where you felt like you'd done that? I think was the words that you just mentioned before about like getting through all the study and getting to that done that point to be able to find that place where you could be more self-compassionate or was it a bit more of like a realisation like I need to be more self-compassionate whether I'm done or you know, reach that point or not. Do you know what I mean? Like- yeah. Um, I probably wasn't um, self-aware of it when I was doing it, but it's, it's a reflection looking back. Um, getting to the point of achieving what I needed to do in my sort of study world um, doesn't mean that I just sort of stopped engaging in that, but I felt, well, you know, as you say, you know, I've achieved... The, the sort of academic qualifications I've wanted in my life, um, which go back to, you know, a teenage uh, in, inferiority about that probably. Mm. Um, and uh, But I recognised once I had that, that it, part, in part that was just achieving some recognition from peers and others, you know, where I was working to say, yes, you know, I'm competent and, and able to mm. do the work that you're employing me to do and I'm also qualified. Um, and so in that sense... Um, I, I didn't lose the passion for it. I just felt that I'd achieved what I needed to do in terms of the means to get there. Yeah. yeah. But having said that, you know, the study I did, you know, I made sure that it wasn't just um, study for study's sake. It was I needed to be um, enthusiastic and, and, and driven to sort of buy some passion behind it as well. Mm. Mm. 
So maybe we can talk about your professional work <coughs> career. I don't like the word career, but I'm going to use it just for now because I can't think of a better one. Um, but I'm quite curious to know, so you obviously you went into medical technology and you were motivated by, was it the health of the population as a whole or...? Uh, no, no, no. I can... If if I follow my sort of professional roles over over my life, um, I, I got into medical technology just when I was young. I was probably about nineteen or something, and I'd been out of school for a, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just happened to be a job that came along. And it wasn't until I was working in it for a time that I sort of developed the sort of um, the compassion for health, I suppose, and um, and developed it from there. So I spent quite a few years in a couple of hospitals in Adelaide. Um, so medical technology in those days um, required somebody that just knew how to set up a lot of machines that could monitor, um, in my case, children, because it was the children's hospital, uh, undergoing you know cardiac investigations or being in the intensive care unit for something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of taught, learnt on the job, apart from doing some medical technology qualifications. But... I sort of developed from there um, into wanting to look at things a little bit more broadly and um, so I, that's when I went back to study um, and did my first undergraduate degree at the age of whatever I was, about 30, 30 odd at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I should say, going back to that, that I was pretty good at school but I, when I left, when I finished school, um, I didn't get fantastic year 12 results that that people were expecting me to get because I was a bit caught up in all sorts of, um, you know, um, slacking off really and enjoying freedom of uh, the Catholic school I was at, giving us a bit of rope and we all tried to hang ourselves with it. So so we sort of mucked around a fair bit. So I had something to prove to myself and it took a while to say, you know, I need to go back to the uni and, and, and actually get the degree I should have perhaps gone for when I first left school. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, so... While I was at the Children's Hospital, I, I went back to study as well. So, so yeah, if you're looking for somebody that knows not how to quite have quiet periods, there's <laughs> someone working full time and doing a and, and doing a study a degree, which I did, you know, a six year part time degree in about four and a half years, I think. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. So, because you have since gone on to do Bachelor of Science. That was my applied maths yep. and statistics. Statistics, yep. a master's of arts in social ecology, a graduate diploma in environmental management, and then you finished it with a doctor of public health. Yeah, I mean that, that's. There's a logic to all of that one. I'm to, sure there was. There's a logic to me. <laughs> I'm sure there was. Uh, but yeah, look, um, obviously doing the. Obviously doing the. Um, the undergraduate degree was was because I, I wanted to be able to, to get that qualification and, and be able to sort of broaden my opportunities in the health system, which I managed to do. Um, and there was a bit of a gap there before I came back to studying again on things like um, doing the Master of Arts in Social Ecology. That was, that was, an, that, that was driven out of interest, actually. Uh, and, um, and Christine, my partner at the time, um, mm. Christine and I both did that degree mm. together. And... Uh, we were interested, even then, with you know, people's place in the world and, and, and how we interact with our environments and, and that sort of social ecology was was looking at that. So it was it was a bit of an out there master of arts degree. Yeah. Uh, and we followed it up with um, um, with some environmental management 
a course in environmental management because we were both looking at maybe sort of trying to either broaden our horizons beyond just the sometimes narrow view of the health system. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and so that's why we, we chose to look at both being qualified in health and environment. That's what I was actually really interested to, to ask you about was your view of the way health is now in our society. I mean, I, I can't personally help but have a really negative view of the health in general of our society um, and it feels like just this polar opposite where you have these either like relatively unfit, unhealthy population that, you know, with chronic disease rates going up mm. you know, and there's so much that I think all of us are aware of. But then you have this other extreme end of the spectrum where <laughs> I feel like there's another group that are going towards extreme fitness and extreme mm. health. and. Mm. I'm just curious, you, you work with um, GP training now and the research behind that. Uh, you're obviously super fit, super healthy, and everything I know about you is very consciously thinking about your health as well. So yeah. wondering what your views are on, in general. I and, and I wasn't always that way, I should say. When I was a young teenager, I was smoking like a lot of a lot of my peers were. Uh, so it took a few years to stop doing that. But uh, that wasn't through any, any, any sort of public health message. It was just I just stopped. And, mm. and substituted it with running, which was a good addiction to, to switch to rather than smoking. But to come back to your question, um, I agree with you, and I think what we've fallen into, particularly in Western societies at the moment in, in health, is that we tend to look at health at, the, at an individual level. There's very little focus in the broader health discourse around sort of population health and the drivers behind what causes um, poor health and chronic diseases and chronic illnesses, for example. Um, and I've worked with um, a fellow, uh, my colleague at Flinders University, Fran Baum, I worked with, and she's very much an advocate of what's called the social determinants of health, mm. which um, Michael Marmer, too, is the... Um, um, professor in America in, in sorry in, in England um, that will lead a commission on that he talks about the causes of the causes you know the, so when we look at chronic disease you sort of say well what's what are the causes here and but what we tend to do is that we tend to fall back on on lifestyle factors all the time mm. and some people call it the lifestyle drift when things get too hard when you can't think about complex questions around the sorts of conditions in which we've created in, in Western worlds that are, that are leading to increases in chronic illness and things like that because there are underneath drivers. We tend to say, well, it's, it's about the individual and if we can get them to lose weight, start exercising. And then there are people like ourselves who are fit, but we're also from a privileged background. Mm. You know, we, we, come, we come with the privilege that we've been born with and grown up with mm. and, and we have... We can make choices around some things like that, and 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 they're economic choices sometimes. I mean, we've just been to Japan. Now that's mm. that's a privilege, in my view, well, to be able to do that. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that, you know, wouldn't be able to do that. And and for them, if their choices are more limited, then sometimes they might just seek out um, th some of the cheaper options. For example, uh, as I've often said, in in some in some sort of poorer or disadvantaged areas in capital cities you'll find there are a lot more takeaway places that congregate around those suburbs and mm. often 
there's very little in the way of fresh fruit outlets, for example. Mm. And if you can buy a Mars bar for 50 cents as opposed to a, a dollar apple, what are you going to go for, for energy? Mm. So, yeah. It's funny because, I mean, going back to Japan, some of that still rings true even to Japan. You know, fresh fruit and veg was so expensive. Mm. I mean, I'm an apple queen and my apples were costing me like $10 for three of them. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, a chocolate bar or something packaged was a lot cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And yet they still seem... But I don't know. I mean, I guess when you look at the younger population there, you are seeing changes. You are, and I think you are in the cities, but we, we were talking about that when we were in Japan, mm. that because of the way, and maybe it's where we were in the countryside where people are, are out and about and, and, and really enjoying that environment. Um, sure, we'd stop at, a, at, a, at a, um, a snack food outlet and there'd be all sorts of snacks. I was, I was amazed at the, the packaging of all the snacks. But what I also noticed out there was that people weren't just sort of wandering around the street eating them either. Mm. In fact, they'd buy them maybe the snacks are a bit more of a, a treat rather than a you know something that you're just eating all the time I think that's for true. cheap they energy definitely have a lot more self-restraint yeah than what I can tell yeah <laughs> they'll chop up one apple for 10 of us and yet I'll sit there and eat you know yeah. the whole apple in 10 minutes myself they they are much more con- like restrained society but I mean, I guess then if we take that conversation, that knowledge that you're providing and insight you're providing around the community and, and the social, I guess, factors that are influencing health, like what do you think is part of the solution? Does it, is it all going to be a self-driven thing or, I mean, that's what your PhD was in, um, doctorate was in? Yeah, well, my doctorate was actually um, looking a little bit more at trying to even go beyond just the um, the sort of social determinants of health and look at the sort of ecological approaches okay. to public health. Right. So we can talk about that later if we need to. But but in terms of the, the sort of social determinants of health, it's really about sometimes, and they're big questions, it's really about changing some of the fundamental structures of the society uh, in terms of things like taxation, um, in terms of growing inequality or inequity uh, in Australia and in lots of other similar countries. So the solutions are actually big and complex and that's mm. why governments aren't willing really to tackle them. They're not really willing to look at, well, why have we got um, a society in which inequality is growing, in which there's becoming a larger gap between you know, those that have and those that haven't. And in addition, there's a gradient across that. So it's not just saying look at the rich and look at the poor, but you mm. can look at you can look at a gradient that follows um, all sorts of different indicators, uh, and you'll see that in in a lot of Western countries now, where you know th- there's a, there's a range of of opportunities that um, that are, are gradated across society. So even people in the middle, the middle classes, sometimes can can sort of be disadvantaged by living in a society where they're part of that. Of that mm, gradient of, of inequality. Yeah. 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 So what do we do? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you and how do you say driven and focused in your line of work, knowing that the challenges are so huge? <laughs> Sometimes that's tricky, and particularly where I'm working at the moment, uh, you know, I'm primarily looking at sort of medical education and research around 
making sure that um, you know that the next generation of general practitioners are as are as you know as good as we can as we can have. So mm-hmm. evaluating um, the programs that go into their medical education, things like that. So that that's the sort of area I'm at the moment. So it's it's a it's a bit sort of more focused and and away from that sort of some of the larger questions. But at the same time, we're also asking um, people to look at some of those larger questions in terms of the ways in which you might, you know, even on a one-to-one consultation point of view with with somebody, understand, for example, the sort of social context within which somebody lives. So, so if they're coming in to be treated for newly diagnosed diabetes, it might not be just about giving advice around um, mm. sugar and diet. Uh, it might also be being, being aware of what's what's the social context in which this person's living and, and what sort of choices are they actually able to make, mm. for example. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that the mindset of the Western GP is changing and the Western medicine as a whole is changing? I, I studied medicine and I had, you know, as part of my degree, there was absolutely zero zilch discussions around nutrition, around really a lot of that social stuff. I mean, I, I ended up going on and doing public health yeah. as part of my medical research degree. But in the actual medical stream, it was much more focused on learning the drug names and the medical conditions. And, yeah. and, and I'm not... I won't be um, trying to guess exactly what the University of Tasmania's medical curriculum is at the moment, but I would, I would think that it, it's still... Um, would have to follow a lot of traditional lines, but I, I do know that there are some efforts to introduce some other um, sort of social social sort of accountability to that to that yeah. structure. Uh, and, and certainly, I know at Flinders, I worked at Flinders University. That was very much part of their medical degree. But but Flinders had what they called a graduate entry medical program. So they people that were studying medicine came in as mature students that had studied something else along the way and maybe even worked in some other area. So, so in a sense, they were coming in with a, with a, a bit more of life experience and they certainly had a, a strong element of sort of social accountability within that course. I don't know about the university here, but I, I do know, having spoken to a few that have gone through, the ones that do think about those issues in 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 the bigger picture tend to go on and do a public health qualification as well Mm, yeah 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 maybe they all should (laughs) maybe it should be you know part of what you need to be able to do to get through but but certainly the ones that that take on a um a public health perspective on top of their on top of their medical degree tend to tend to look at the world a little bit more differently Mm. Mm. but a lot of medical i mean if i look back and i've been in the system for a long time if i look back on medical students just as, as, as a whole nowadays, I'd say that um, a lot of them are very um, passionate and compassionate about a lot of issues in the world. I mean, you, know, you have to look at the, the doctors that will go off and work with refugees, that will work with medicines on frontier or, or you know. There's, there's plenty of advocates. We had, uh, yeah. you know, uh, medical students, uh, human rights medical students group at Flinders that were very active in, in working with Amnesty. So, mm. so yeah, there's there's plenty of that going on. Um, yeah, I think as a whole, I mean, we we talked about that polar opposite that's happening, but I mean, we even frequent the same cafes and <laughs> similar tastes. But you know, there's definitely 
definitely a change happening at the moment on one end where there's an increase in the number of people, like with the number of trail running events, there's increase in the number of um, fitness groups and social groups popping up and the cafe scene has become much more plant-based and sort of whole food focused mm. and mm. coming from organic and that's, it, it really does feel like there's a shift and I am, a, I find it hard watching the ill health of the community but I have this sort of positivity in me that we are slowly changing whether or not it's quick enough and at the rate it needs to change and across yeah. the board enough but yeah. it has to start somewhere I guess yeah it does and, and um, certainly cities like Hobart that's quite evident because it's a small and a compact city and for those of us that are um, privileged enough to be able to live live on its urban fringe um we we can take the benefits of being able to walk and cycle and run mm. you know even to work um that's not the case for everybody mm. um there are people you know living in the outer suburbs that are struggling to get rent at the moment or or to try and buy a house and they end up becoming like in many cities um the outer the outer urban commuters so you know just adding to the the car traffic that comes mm. in every day that's that's another another area that's pretty hard to pretty hard to solve but mm. yeah so we've talked about obviously your career a bit we've talked a bit about just you and and the experiences in japan but I, i'm kind of curious if we start to think about it a bit more as a whole as michael as a whole like do you do you have a calling do you like do you have that purpose that you know of that you're here for i'm curious about this because in my to be honest, in my generation, now now it sounds like there's a gap between us, but in my generation and amongst my friends and peers, there's this sense that we need to find our thing, like our purpose, the thing that kind of keeps us true. Um, and often that is to do with career, but not 100% always. And I'm just sort of wondering where you sit in that. What yeah. advice you have for us? Oh, don't ask. Don't ask for <laughs> advice from someone like that. I think every generation has to work it out. I never asked my parents for that advice either. I don't think. Uh, and in fact, if anything, my parents, coming back, coming from the working class background that they came from, were just very happy that um, that we were able to to do the work or get the qualifications or the study, the opportunities at least to do things that they perhaps weren't able to do mm. in, the, in their in their time. Um, but my mother's piece of advice to me always comes through and says, I, I don't really mind what you do in your life, to, to all of us, and there were seven of us, um, as, long as, as long as you're happy. And, and I think if she saw, if we were happy, she was happy. And, and, and in a sense, that, that's a, you know, not a bad piece of advice, if you like, mm. um, to pass on from a generation. Okay, you know, you, try, you may be thinking that you've got to find your purpose in life or your calling or something like that, but, but are you happy while you're doing it? Uh, are you, or are you at peace with yourself while you're doing that? Um, and, see, yeah. you know, look, I, you know, when, when I was your age, I probably wasn't. Um, we've just been talking about what I was doing. You know, I was as driven as as you are in different ways, you know, trying to find my way in the world and, and get all the qualifications I needed to be able to increase my choices and my mm. options. Um, so I was working, you know, as hard as, not not as hard as you, but, um, you know, I was working pretty solidly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and combining it with, you know, family and running and all sorts of things. I mean, I took up marathon running 
when yes. I was in my 30s. So. Yes, and you were very good at it. <laughs> so uh, that was yeah. quite a surprise when we were sharing emails and information before this podcast. I mean, you're such a humble, quiet achiever. You know, I didn't know that you ran sub three hour marathons. Yeah. Well, truly sub three hour marathons. A couple, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was. Uh, that was, uh, you know, a driven thing too, uh, and uh, it, it comes at a price, I think, to to work that hard to try mm-hmm. and run a good marathon, and and because I, when I ran the first one, I think it was over four hours, and then I sort of ran a three and a half hour one, and then the next time I got down into the close to three hours, but I, I had a moment, a period where I, every time I ran a marathon, I'd sort of just crash out over that point, and I was getting sick and. Uh, and as I said to you, I ended up having my tonsils out because that was a I'd had chronic tonsillitis since I was a kid, so I'd sort of bit the bullet and and had them removed when I was mm. thirty. And then the next year I was in fighting form, mm. um, and you know found that I, I sort of could jump to that next level. But because I was driven by that, once I got to that level, I thought that's that's as good as I can probably do without having to work even harder. And there's, as you'd be well aware of, there's a sort of law of diminishing returns for effort that you can achieve, you know, a fairly good result with about a 90% effort and, and to get a very small increase in what you've done, you've got to, you've almost got to double that again and, and you plateau off. And, and so, so I decided that's when I was, went back to study after that, I sort of took a break from from all that hard marathon training and and just shifted my focus. Yeah, and so when you talked about, um, I can't remember the word you used, sorry, but like the the risks of pushing that hard for that long a period, was it just the health that suffered, or was it multiple multiple? It's multiple things. things. Yeah. You know, it's quite a it's quite a selfish activity to um, to commit yourself to trying to run a a. a, a um, whatever event it is but for me the marathon because you it's a lot of training it's a lot of, it's a lot of time you know if, if you're working and then you're going off mm. two or three times a uh, you know a, a, night, a week at night training with a with a club and then you know you go you have to do these long runs you know I'd, I'd do a monthly sort of 40 kilometer run to work you know I'd get up and five o'clock in the morning and run to work you know 40 kilometers away things like that um you know that's all time away from everything else that you you, know, you make choices about that yeah. Yeah, and um, and I just found that it was it was a lot of work, and and also having reflected on the the conversations we all had about nutrition and training and things like that, I mean, you know, they weren't they weren't great times for um, for really really um, informed ways of of running smart either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, J- jelly beans at the 20 mile mark was the, probably the only sugar you used to take on in a marathon the rest of it was just drinking drinking water the whole time you know yeah so there's you know if you, if you look back on it and, and i know you've you and i've talked about this if you look back on some of your early efforts and all and some of the mistakes you were making in the hindsight of what you know now um i probably could have done better if i if i was stopped and thought about it a little bit more um i did put a lot of effort into um into injury prevention so I never got I never got injured running marathons and I was pretty conscious of all of the treatments and things like that to, to look after your knees and hips and things like that so but nutrition no nah. but that that's really fascinating I mean it, it, 
feel like nutrition is definitely something that's been a focus more recently. Like I don't, I really don't think even athletes 10 years ago knew what we know. Maybe, no, we shared the information that we get shared now. Mm. It's definitely becoming something that more and more athletes from the elite to the recreational end are starting to pay attention to. Mm. So what's your experience now with nutrition and how it's changed your ability to perform as an athlete? Uh, I think that the two messages that um, that we've talked about, which is around when you when you run and you sweat, you lose salt, and your brain, when it's on a trail, needs glucose to concentrate on what mm. you're doing, and and so you've you've got to replenish salt, salt and glucose, and and it's a really simple message when you think about it. Mm. You know, make sure that you've got electrolytes on board and some gels, and you should be fine. So um, before you started making that change, because that was that was a very that's a very recent, recent one. Very yeah. recent. So before that, when you started to fatigue, when you started to like stumble or mm. you know have those moments, what were you thinking about the why that was happening or yourself at that point? Because I'm curious. Because you know I don't love to talk about age, but we have a lot of people in our community who are getting older and want to keep going but I know one person in my immediate family who often says when she's having those blue moments on the trail oh it's because I'm getting older or you <laughs> um, know uh, my fitness isn't like it used to be yeah I, I would agree with the second yeah mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to oh this is this, you know this is terrible I'm stumbling I, I'm just I've fallen over or I've mm. stumbled or whatever, it's because I'm getting old. I certainly don't don't think that. Yeah. But I do think that it was about um, getting some fitness back. And and you know, I'm a reasonably still a fit person, but yeah. but I needed to I needed to uh, to sort of up that a level. Um, to sort of and and having come back from Japan, I think I've even reached a, you know, a new level about appreciating now with what we've learned on the trip, what we've mm. learned from your experience and your from your um, advice, um, I've certainly now realised that you know, I've actually increased my level of fitness in terms of, um, uh, as, as your previous podcaster Lee Belbin would talk about, <laughs> punctuating that equilibrium. Yeah. You know, maybe I was just somewhere on that sort of plateau for a while and just sort of trotting along and going for a couple of runs and you know some cycling and some walking and not really thinking about what I perhaps needed to do just to sort of just up the notch, up the notch just punctuate that a little bit and see what you could do yeah. and, and certainly you know running every day for nine or ten days in, in Japan you know certainly lifted that notch yeah. but uh, so yeah fitness I think is, is important I think fit yeah, I think... Fitness, a base level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think knowing you, like, your fitness definitely is improving, for sure, without mm. a doubt. But I do think that so many people think fitness is the reason why they're not performing on the trail when it actually can be a nutritional I agree. Thing. And I um, was probably thinking it was fitness as well. Yeah. Because I wasn't, Yeah. you know, charging up with... Um, you know, with gels while I was running, you know, even some of the, like going out for two hours or something like that, sometimes I wouldn't, 
yeah. have them on board. So you, know? you can really think that that lesson is so relevant to so many people in our recreational athlete mm. sort of circle and community from people who are beginning out who think that that feeling of fading on the trail is their fitness and they need to push harder when really they just need to put some glucose in yep. the tank and replace some salt and water right through to, you know, the likes of this person in my immediate family who thinks maybe my fitness isn't where it used to be, my strength, my age, and really it could be just fuel yourself a little bit more. <laughs> I think you have to acknowledge that you may, your limits change as you get yeah, older. for sure. Um, we were talking a bit earlier about running sub-three-hour marathons. There's no way I'd run a sub-three-hour marathon anymore. Probably me either. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I just know that. Uh, and, yeah. and, in fact, I've just finished reading, um, while I was in Japan, um, a book by a Japanese writer called Haruki Murakami uh, who, yes. who said, you know, what I talk about when I talk about running. And yes. he's, he's run marathons all his life from when he first became a writer. But, but he makes that observation that, you know, some of his times now are, are much slower than he than when he was a young athlete, mm. and you just have to accept that. Um, you know, my trail running times are, are, are um, a lot slower than what I used to train at. You know, mm. you know. Have you ever had point of struggle where you knew what you used to be able to do? You know what you're doing now, and there's a frustration in that gap or have you been able to take this ability to be compassionate and self-compassionate like we were talking about before mm. with you on that journey as yeah well? I think I have because um and, and and in two ways one is the current focus for me is just enjoying myself on trails and that's very different to my previous running experience which was trying to run a sub three hour marathon which was a lot of road running mm. um, and so that's one shift you know, I don't want to go back to being a road runner because I would then probably get a little frustrated that mm. I would be really slow, you know, and and plotting plotting a forty-two kilometer marathon on the road just doesn't appeal. So, so trail running is is more um, exciting. It's more engaging because you're engaged with where you're going and and having to look out for where you're going. And in a sense, those times don't matter as much because. You know, every trail is different, and mm. you know, there's there's hard to make a comparison uh, on sort of you know pace per kilometer when you when the when the terrain's so diverse. So that so I, I can get part. So in saying that, it doesn't doesn't bother me. I mean, I know how how long a run takes and how what my sort of average pace was for the run. I go, oh yeah, you know, in in the old days that would have been like walking pace for for marathon training almost. But yeah, you know, it's different. So do you, taking all that into account, do you have like a set routine, do you have like a training plan or are you, do you go by feel, does your head lead you, does your heart lead you, like how do you approach your running? Yeah, probably until recently it was probably just head and heart, just going, oh, what do you feel like doing this week? And, and generally I would try and just run um, you know, or, or do some exercise over a seven-day period with a, with a rest day or two um, that just gave me uh, a, a feeling, a good feeling of, you know, being out there physically active. So it might be three runs, it might be a cycle, uh, an indoor cycle class, uh, a weekly Pilates class. So so over that period, every day I'd be doing something and having having usually just one or maybe two rest days where, where it would only involve walking the dogs yeah. uh, or walking to work or whatever. So, you know... 
having come back from Japan and sort of set myself a few a few goals around just a few events and things like that just to go and run in, mm. um, I've actually had to think about it in a bit more detail. Like I'm going to run the Point to Pinnacle in four weeks' time and I've never done that before and it may be the only time I will do it because it is up the road, but um, I've actually had to think about the training for that, making sure that I actually um, am going to be fit on the day and feel that I can comfortably do the distance. So I've got a training plan at the moment, which I think I might have mentioned to you. Follows the famous Hanny Alston wave <laughs> wave training. That was not a biased question. <laughs> no, but I, I, I came back from Japan and worked out it was six weeks between coming back from Japan and running the Point to Pinnacle, which was ideally two, three-week waves. Yeah, perfect. Uh, which was just perfect. As soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, I can, yeah, I can do this. I can go out and yeah. do a few longer runs and, you know, so... But I, I definitely, I mean, I asked that question a bit because we were having a lot of conversations in the group because it was such a big age gap. There was such a big, like, just demographic gap mm. in general. We all came from very different walks of life, which mm. I think was beautiful. But you, when you were talking about your daily routines and how, you know, you how often you would get up and take your time and do a bit of Pilates and wake your body up and run as you felt and... Um, look after your nutrition like I think that really hit a lot of us you know just the, the again it keeps going back to the, depth, the self-compassion that you're yeah. able to show yourself in the way you approach your training and I, and I think you know you were saying you've n- never really had injuries and I think that's obviously why like you, you have this innate ability to nurture yourself yeah. even though you can push yourself yeah it's pretty cool yeah 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 and yeah. also I'm aware of um when I say you know I wake my back that's because I do have some you know like like many people that get older you know some degenerative changes in the spine and, mm. and I know those so I get them looked after I have treatments every month and I have a massage every month and I do Pilates and mm. you know all of those things I'm I'm aware of I need to do yeah for my for to be able to continue to enjoy myself and and be out on the trails it's really you interesting know, you know yeah. when I'm out there I'm I'm I have no nickels whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, I'm feeling great, but, you know, that first moment in the morning when you wake up and you're a bit stiff or, or if you've been standing around or sitting around at work and you get up and you feel, oh, back's a bit stiff. Yeah. You know, just, yeah, you need to do, you need to stretch and you need to do things to um, to help that along. To be compassionate. Yeah. Keeps coming back to it. I'm definitely learning this. It's been a long <laughs> process. No, but, I, I mean, I'm really fascinated by this and... I'm fascinated as well by the why people run and I think again one thing that really hits me with you is that you just genuinely love being out there mm. and that achievement that experience that you get and I'm I'm nervous to go here with the conversation I will admit it because but I'm, I hope you don't mind me asking because obviously you lost your partner just over a year ago nearly it's 22 months really it's yeah. not long now mm. um Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. There's been enough fun in there for it to fly. But uh, that that all happened, I mean, so quickly. Yeah. Like it was such a quick change for you. Yeah. And I could imagine that some of us, if we were to have such an experience, would want to run away from the emotions that would go with that, without a doubt. And I'm wondering how you approached that grief time, whether it was 
by necessity or by focused attention on how you approached it and maybe where the running kind of not I don't want to put words in your mouth but I'm curious to know whether the running featured in that but I'm also curious to know where the self-compassion and the other things that you Ooh, are featured in there's a lot in there there's a lot in there honey um, um yeah look it, it's been a tough time mm. um when you when you lose somebody that uh, that you loved so deeply mm. um Grief, grief is the other side of the coin to love and to love deeply means you grieve hard mm. uh, and there's certainly certainly that one of the one of the one of the last things that Christine had said to me before she died was um, well I won't be leaving you alone because we've got these two beautiful border collies mm-hmm. and and in a sense I have to acknowledge them because they are and have been one of the reasons I get out of bed in the morning. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, if if, and I've thought about it a few times that if I was was alone and left alone without without any companions, and and you know animal companions are as important as as humans sometimes, if not more compassionate. Um, <laughs> the um, if I was just alone, I might have followed a different journey, and I, I, mm. I didn't really want to. I don't really want to go there when I think about it, because it, it could have been a, a real tough, even tougher time. But, mm. but but getting up and and going out with them for walks, and you know, doing my routines of going and having coffee in the city and things like that, of all all of those little things have helped along the way. Just just keep me still you know in the land of the living if you like you know you know there's a, a song i think paul kelly had a song something about you know i could have died for love but for living i was born and and so you know i'll be i'll be hanged if if, if you're going to see me die and so in a sense that's a, a paraphrase of that but in a sense that's what what i've come to i think mm-hmm. well yeah you know the, I, I i grieved hard and i still do um but at the same time i've got to get on with living and um the dogs have helped me with that. Mm-hmm. And so I was running because before that, we would spend so much time together just going out on walks particularly. I mean, Christine wasn't a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would go for just more occasional runs, but we would spend a lot of our time, free time together, going out day walking. Uh, and if we could, take the dogs with us as well if, if it wasn't a national park. Um, so, so in a sense, being suddenly on your own without it, without a without a, a human companion like that, um, running has helped me sort of say, well, I, I can go back to something that I, that I know I have been good at yeah. and see whether I can refine some of that. And also it, it's well known that that sort of physical activity is really good for um, fighting off depression. Mm. So, yeah, de- dealing with the blues. It definitely, I mean, definitely physiologically. Physiologically, you know that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I think the thing that strikes me and having come to know you, I knew you both before then and then, you know, being on on the sideline of that journey a little bit um, through the dogs, particularly no, dealing with the dogs are beautiful. But what I think really struck me about you and getting to know you even deeper on a deeper level in Japan is that running isn't your everything. And I, you know, it, it's helped you, you love it, it gives you attunement to yourself, to nature, to the environment, to people as well and culture, but 
you have other things in your life that if that moment came where you suddenly couldn't run for a period of time, your world wouldn't fall apart. And I think that's the difference between some of the stories we hear about that are inspiring when you hear them. But when you get on a deeper level in the story, you realize that that's a fragile place to be because that running is their world or that activity is their world. And if that's suddenly taken away for whatever reason, mm. you know, it can leave a person very fragile. Mm. And I agree. Running is certainly not, it's not everything I am. And it's, it's just one of the things I do that, that gives me great enjoyment. Mm. Um, when you've just said that, though, I, I had a moment of feeling a little, a little scared to say, <laughs> you know, well, actually, I don't want to be able to suddenly not be able to run, mm. you know, if, if, if you've got some sort of injury that, you know, would stop you from running or whatever. I think, well, I'm not sure how I'd deal with that because it's, it is imp- an important part of what I do, but only because of the enjoyment that it, that it brings mm. me. And so I would then be saying, well, probably in the way that I look at the world, I'd be there saying, well, what, what would I replace that with mm. um, that would still be able to give me the enjoyment that I wanted to get? Uh, and I see that around, um, you know, even people that are walking around um, up here in Knock Lofty where we're overlooking today, um, you know, they're all, all levels of ability around there. And, you mm. know, there's um, one of the neighbours down the hill that still gets up there every day walking three little dogs and she's yeah. got a walking frame. But, you know, as I've discovered, she's about 86 years of age. Yeah. You know, so... But you know, it is you, 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 you find ways of doing it. Yeah. You know, you get driven up there and... Yeah. You know, you go... For, you, it's, a, it's about the way in which you look at the world. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that's what this conversation really is about at the end of the day, isn't it? It's about finding finding a way of looking at the world that is real for you, is truthful for you. Like, it's mm. speaking your truth and acting your truth and running your truth and being your truth as a person. Because... I think it's important to ask yourself that question frequently. Like, if something changed in my world and I couldn't do some of the things I'm doing, how would I be? How would I feel? And Mm. I think that's what I feel like grief probably gives you that insight. I mean, you don't have to lose someone to experience that 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 um, lesson like I've had it earlier in my life mm. I've had it numerous times in my life where you get pulled to a halt by something something major and forced to kind of relook at the way you are in your world mm. um, and I think isn't it I mean you probably know more about this through your work than I do but humans aren't very good at forward thinking like getting getting far ahead of themselves like they often need an immediate reason to change, to actually make change or to, to grow? Do you... Mm. And I know um, one of the sort of metaphors that I've used in the past about that and and, uh, and have mentioned to you before is sometimes in life you need to think about life as not having a roadmap that you can just follow, you know, mm. like, a, like a Google map on your phone and just follow the journey. But having having some sort of sense of of a horizon that you're aiming for and it might and not may not be as really clear but you, you've got a sense that that's where i'm heading mm. and sometimes to get there you've got to sail you know you've got to go out in a boat and and you're subject to all of the changes of the weather uh, and sometimes if you can keep your eye on on that distant horizon then you adjust to what life throws at you you know mm. in a boat what 
the wind throws at you, or the wind might blow up, or it might become you, or all sorts of things could happen that'll um, mean that you have to change tack a little bit and think, oh, oh I wasn't expecting that, so mm. maybe I need to just think about doing this for a while. But, but at the same time, always having a sense of, well, I am still sailing towards, you know, a horizon that, uh, that you, you may never get to. And it does, does that really matter? Maybe that's one of the lessons we got from Japan is mm. that you don't actually have to, to be sort of goal-driven, but, but, you know, to have a sense of how to sort of navigate through the world every day and, and adjust to what, what it throws at you. Yeah, mm. that's pretty much where I've reached yeah. as a person, I think. Um, my understanding of it, I'm sure it'll change again. But I kind of got there by realising that... <clears throat> It's really important to understand what our values are because when those winds of life buffet you, you know, I think you come back to that quite strongly, like who you stand, who you are and what you stand for and how you stand by it, I think. And those values tend to hold you strong in those moments. Mm. And so for me, it came back to like wanting to be more compassionate, you know, really wanting to live and respect Tasmania, live in and respect Tasmania as a whole and contribution is a really important value for me, growing knowledge. Like, So I'm wondering, do you, do you have a vision of your horizon? or Because you just seem to kind of... I can feel, you know, you're navigating somewhere, but I'm, I'm just wondering if you know where you're, where you're navigating to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. As I said, I'm, I'm navig- when I say I'm navigating towards an horizon, it, it, it means I'm actually... Not, not shifting back in the world and just not wanting to do anything and, and just sort of float listlessly. Um, I, I don't have, I'm, I, the horizon is not a goal where I say when I achieve this result in mm. whatever my activity is, then I've done it. It's or about, it's, it's about saying, yeah, yeah, maybe the horizon is actually saying I want to be able to sort of live in a way in which, you know, um, I am more compassionate and self-compassionate uh, and aware, um, think about the sort of impact that I'm having in the environment that I'm living in, the sorts of things in larger sense that societies are having, you know, on all the big issues, for example, around climate change, around species loss. There's all sorts of those things that could could bog you down and get you quite depressed, but at the same time you could say, well, you know, these are the things that are happening around us and, and working towards awareness of that and supporting causes that you're able to do along the way to help that is probably my horizon so I'm going to take that as my last major question for you that I have now and then maybe we'll start wrapping up but um you mentioned in your email to me and the pre-notes for the podcast about seeing yourself not really knowing exactly what your why is going for but seeing yourself in the role of a natural guardian I just wondered if you could expand on that because it's quite an unusual phrase. It's an unusual phrase. It's a phrase that um, is coined by the Tasmanian Land Conservancy um, for people who are committed to conservation in some way. And in, in the case of the Land Conservancy, it's about the ability to be able to buy parcels of land in Tasmania that we can protect from from development so that they become um, 
ecosystems or part of larger ecosystems where you can have you know the continuing biodiversity and species differentiation that um, that's important for for the environment we live in here uh, and to be a natural guardian is is to say that I'll work towards that conservation but also um, beyond my own life whatever um, legacy I leave behind part of that will support the ongoing work the art and the science of what the Tasmanian Land Conservancy do mm. and, and so they they call us the people that are, are committed to to land con, land conservation natural guardians because you know it's 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 a it's not only in our own lifetimes that we're doing that but it's also beyond our lifetimes mm. so um as the example um, that I mentioned um I set up a fund in the Tasmanian Land Conservancy through their foundation, um, which is called the Solace Fund, S-O-L-A-S, and it's an Irish word for light. Uh, it's also, the, in English, the source of the word for solace, when we mm-hmm. seek solace from somewhere. And that's in the memory of Christine. So there's um, a fund that's been set up in there that becomes part of the foundation's capital that they can invest to fund the activities that they do both in the art and science of, of land conservation. Uh, and over time, um, I, I'm adding to that as I go, but, you know, come, come the ultimate time when I die, um, then my will has also made provision for, you know, a big chunk of, of my whatever I own at the time um, to go into that. Oh. Yeah. That's amazing. And so, and so that's why they call us natural guardians. Yeah. It's really inspiring, Michael, because, like you say, it can be so easy to feel small when you read about everything going on, and we talked about the health, but then there's the natural side, mm. and yet, as individuals, you're right, like, there's a lot we can do, it's, it's about a choice, I mean, obviously a privilege at some point, um, to have that opportunity to be able to give back, but all those little decisions that and choices that we make like you mentioned about diet and our imprint on the on the world and sitting down to have your cup and not taking it as a takeaway and how that can then influence your community i mean that's how we first met you mm. know? Um, mm. your beautiful dog sitting in criterion street needing to know who this person was that you saw every day drinking a cup of tea or coffee and being a bit of a role model for yeah. society and yeah. um yeah so i I'm, I really applaud you and I hope that actually, you know, when I was doing my, pre, my pre-reading and then having this conversation now, the sparks excitement about how we can contribute to that fund. I think it's an amazing um, thing. And, and I think also um, something like the Tasmanian Land Conservancy is also a, a, an organisation that um, is able to have strong values about what, it, what its purpose is, mm. but at the same time it, it can negotiate some of the the, the tougher um, politics of of environmental causes by by having a, a niche in which it says, well, this is what we do, mm. and this is important. So is all of this as well. You know, um, the work that Bob Brown does is important, but he has his his foundation have a different a different angle on, on what they do, and, and yeah, they're all complementary. The Tasmanian Land Conservancy 
from what I have been able to ascertain and through hearing keynote speaking by, you know, heads of TLC, so Tasmania Land Conservancy, they tend to be a bit more apolitical and just tend to really have very, very strong values, but also run as a business, you know, and very self-sufficient business at that. Mm. It's quite impressive. I think um, they started with about $500 and now they've got... It's extraordinary. You know, millions yeah. of dollars of and land that's been yeah, that's exactly. been that's been preserved now. Preserved, yeah, and not just preserved to be locked and kept, but you no, know, looked after. Yeah, it's been managed as well, I and mean, that's the important. That's the other important thing. It's not just like saying, "Let's grab this piece of land and lock it up and not do anything with it." No, they're they're actively managing managing like, it and then opening it up. Yeah. You know, and anyone can go and visit these properties. It's yeah. you know really yeah. like it's also very trusting in the way that they're doing it. That's so right. Yeah. Good on you. Total yeah. uh, commend you for it. All right. So I want to wrap up now. Um, I'd love to finish with a few Kelly questions. I mean, you've heard some of my podcasts, I'm sure. So um, I'm just kind of curious to know when you feel like you're your best self. Uh, yeah. When when are you your best self? Well. <laughs> I don't get much curlier than that. When am I my best self? I'm probably at my best self when I'm aware of being at my best self um, would be the answer to that. Um, and if there are times in which I've, I'm a bit grumpy or a bit upset with something, um, generally nowadays I'm, I stop and think, why is that the case? Yeah. And so I'm at my best self when I'm when I'm self-aware. When I you're attuned. When I'm attuned. <laughs> I can't imagine you grumpy. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. Just say. No, no. People people that have seen me grumpy know that know that I can do grumpy quite well. <laughs> um, do you have one value that floats higher than the rest that sort of often rises to the surface above everything? Do I have one value? No, that's that's on the spot. That's a hard question to answer. I don't think, and, and by hesitating, I'm thinking there's there's no one thing that immediately leaps to mind. But giving me fifteen seconds to think about it further, I would say probably my value of of um, natural justice in the world is what comes above mm. everything else. And that can apply to um, a social justice question in terms of looking at the societies that we live in and, and looking at where there are social injustices but also where there are natural injustices as mm. well. Yeah. Hmm. Do you spend focus time working on self, like reflective time and, you know, whether it's journaling or poetry or... Do you spend time and you schedule time or do you just, is it sort of something that's an ongoing? I don't, no, I don't dedicate time. Um, there, there have been times when I've gone through different um, periods of doing meditation and you know, I even did TM when I was younger and things like that, just to sort of do that, that awareness. I've sort of dropped off that a little bit over, over time. I, I think probably I'm, it's just now part of, an everyday cycle. Part of um, you. Part of me. I don't don't feel the need to sort of stop and do deep mindfulness training or anything like that anymore. But but I have done that in the past. Hmm. What are you most excited for? At the moment, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm most excited about just extending the way in which I can engage in the environments that I both live in and travel to. Mm. Yeah. Oh, see, that's why we're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, that could be in different ways, not just on the trails, but, yeah, in, but in different I totally ways. Agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was actually something I was going to say earlier, and we sort of um, ended up on a tangent, but when we were talking about achievement in nature and like getting reaching that place on a trail where you're in achievement, I think for me what I've been really aware of, and it's now becoming a part of me without needing to focus on it so much, is bringing achievement into my, my everyday world. Um, you know, even the process of brushing your teeth or... Mm going to bed and lying there and not letting the head just continue on until you fall asleep but to to attune and be aware of like your environment and um that's kind of been something that like I've been focusing on yeah, yeah so and when I was thinking about coming up here today and for uh, for listeners on on the podcast <laughs> we're, we're sitting and overlooking Kunyani, the mountain, uh, with Knock Lofty in the foreground. But I actually wrote a haiku, uh-huh. which I was doing in Japan, uh, for this place. So we almost could finish with that because it is about attunement. Go for uh, it. And, and the haiku is, trees talking on the high hill at the urban fringe. Are we listening? Oh, my God. Oh. Well, I'm not going to add to that <laughs> because that is, like, the most perfect way to sum up today's conversation like I was so excited to learn from you you just have layers lots of them and um I'm so grateful to have seen them and I'm really grateful grateful to have been able to share them today on the podcast um for me like the podcast is a challenge like I I don't feel pressure but I I want every conversation to, to have a richness that can help people and the I guess there's pressure in that to find those people that bring light to the world solace (laughs) um and I feel like today's conversation is really meaningful to me um okay I feel like the take-home I've definitely got out of today is this concept of achievement so if we take achievement from you and punctuated equilibrium from Lee who I think we both really admire, you know, I think you can put yourself in a pretty phenomenal place. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.